0: Today, the way that the losing everything manifests is—it's—it's it's definitely still really scary, and I do think there's some little triggers that still exist in there. And I can only imagine what that must feel like for someone who's gone through um, something even more traumatic than you know, in business. Um, because you know, I, I imagine this is kind of like what a PTSD thing would feel like.
1: Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains Podcast.
2: In 2009, Jodie Fox built
1: something that so many of us can only dream of, a multi-million dollar business with stores in Australia and the US and a global customer base selling direct to consumer. Shoes of Prey allowed women to design their shoes in any colour, material, shape or size. It was customization at scale. Along with her co-founders, she developed a global e-com platform she opened award-winning stores, raised over $27 million in funding, and even established her own factories in China. To give you some context to how confident investors were, Nordstrom, one of America's biggest department stores, was one of them. Mass on-demand manufacturing was the blue sky vision until it all went terribly wrong. While early signs of growth look promising, Shoes of Prey was unable to achieve mass market adoption. And in 2016, the business finally went into liquidation. Lady Brains, this is a conversation not just about her failures, but the value of failure, the lessons that have come out of her story, and the bravery that she's shown in sharing her experience. It's a great conversation for all of us to partake in. Right now, around the world, so many of us are failing through no fault of our own, but as a result of the circumstances of our current climate. We hope that this conversation brings you some comfort and it encourages you to be brave and to share your wins, your losses, and everything in between. Most importantly, don't forget to back yourself.
2: I've actually almost read it twice. Yeah. Mm. It was such a brilliant book. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah. You know, thank you. I, I, um, it's funny. I had a friend, this has happened to me a couple of times where a friend will like be like, Hey, I'm reading your book. And I, I hate knowing when people are reading my book (laughs) because (laughs) I didn't really realize until I finished writing it. I knew, I knew that I was just writing the honest to God truth Mm. of what it felt like along the way. Um, but I didn't realize how much I was saying Mm. until it was out there in people's hands. Mm. And I remember the first time I saw someone reading it, I was on a plane and it was the day after the book had launched and I just felt like throwing up. (laughs) (laughs) I would see them flip pages and I was like, Oh my God, what did they think of that page? And then I, and you know, it was like a three hour flight and I just wanted to like pull it out of their hands and be like, just, I can't, (laughs) which is, you know, it was more just, you know, kind of, it's a, it's a weird thing. I thought I would be like totally stoked seeing people reading it, but it's actually a really confronting, Mm. um, crazy thing. But my hope and certainly the discussions I've had out of it Mm. have been really exciting because actually the best thing to learn is that it's not a unique story. There are, it's other people's stories as well and experiences mm. that everyone else has. And that has definitely been worth the risk yeah. in the journey of doing it. I think mm. you
1: you nailed it when you um, said that your uh, story isn't unique. You know, we know that one third, one third of businesses end up failing, which is, you know, there are a lot of people out there that have experienced this at all different stages of their journey. Um, but you just happened to do it on a grand scale <laughs> and one that was uh, <laughs> that was spoken about, uh, yeah. you know, around the world. Um, and it is such a great learning story, but I want to know what was your relationship with failure like before all of this happened?
0: So I guess it's kind of an interesting thing. I would say that it was kind of the same, but I didn't understand it as well. So it's a a very different thing to try something and not have it work and then try something else and, you know, have it to be a little bit more successful and take those learnings on. So from not just theoretical, but applying it, yeah, I, I understood it. And I really agreed with all of those Things that I'd read about it, you know, we learn our most from failing, you know, failures should be shared and talked about because that's where the best lessons are and how we can move forward and leaps and bounds and all this kind of thing. And I firmly, firmly believe that, which is why I wrote a book about the really tough part of it. Um, the difference uh, this time is that it was a lot, lot, lot more personal. So it wasn't just, oh, this email campaign didn't quite hit the numbers we thought it would, or, oh, this is, um, you know, like ones like that, or that piece of tech that we just built, um, it's got a bug in it or whatever it is. This was um, a cumulative thing over a large number of years. And it was very public as well. And um, all of those things really add up because in, whenever there is a failure, there is a little bit of personal shame, you know, and mm-hmm. when we watch movies and we see the hero's journey, you know, we we expect to see them win and we expect to, you know, be relieved at the end because it all worked out. And the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, that's, that's a movie and that's not real life. <laughs> um, and for me, yeah, this was the accumulation of 10 years of work. It was a lot of people invested it was how I formed a lot of my identity. And so, and it was very, very, very public. So yeah, it was a lot different to other experiences of failure that I'd had. How do you view failure now? Um, it's, it's humbling. Uh, it's the best teacher you can ever have. And also, um, I think that the person who's experiencing the failure, the person I'm going to borrow from Roosevelt, you know, from the arena, the person who's been in there, Mm. um, really views and understands in a more deeply empathetic way. Um, I think that these kinds of really formative experiences are different for every single person, but certainly in my experience, the level of empathy that it, pushed through me, um, it it came out from that experience really drove way more intelligent questions in my mind when I had, um, had the opportunity to learn about where other people had stumbled or failed in their journeys as well. And from that, much, much richer information and understanding of how to do or not do things or the sort of the more devils in the details stuff became really sharply clear to me in from not only my own experience, but watching other people's experiences too. So that's, that's pretty cool. There was yes, yeah, some more of a human connection, more of a sort of real sort of flowering of that personal <laughs> part of, um, and all those those softer measures, but then a real sharpness on the more sort of um, measurable things too. And so
2: I guess we'd like to, I guess, have a bit of an insight into the time in the business when you sort of felt like things were starting to, I don't know whether escape you is the right word, but like, was there a moment in your journey where you thought, oh my gosh, like this actually may not work or this might not? I might not bounce back from this.
0: So in my experience of high growth company with, um, a lot of funding behind it that you're really pushing for and all that kind of thing, you really are having that conversation all the time, mm. and particularly with yourself, because you are paving new ground. So with Shoes of Prey, you know, we were an entirely new path of retail where there's nothing sitting in the stock room tell us what you want and we'll make it for you and then figuring out not only how to deliver that accurately from the product that you click on on the screen but also how do how do you build a factory that someone hits buy now somewhere around the world and then it prints out and you've got to make it so you know there were there were all of these you know, versions of retail and manufacturing and technology that we were totally breaking new ground on. Um, and nobody knew if any of those would work or if all of them would work or, you know, how that would happen. So, you know, you would form a thesis about what the the whole thing should be. And then you would start to drive down into, okay, well that theory then crystallizes in this kind of consumer experience or the factory would have to be able to deliver these things. But nobody knows because it hasn't been done before. And then you talk to your investors about it and you kind of, you know, draw and, and you talk to experts in manufacturing and experts in rendering, you know, realistic imagery and all that kind of stuff. And then you go, okay, well, I, th- I think that this is what we need to build and put out there and we're going to see if that works and test it. So really, um, you know, it was kind of a daily thought like, will that work? Will it not work? Is this going to drive up the conversion rate? Like we hope it will. Is this going to increase lifetime value? You know, Mm. it it was a daily conversation. And I think that, um, it's funny. Sometimes I am asked about, you know, how I relate to success and all that kind of stuff. And we did achieve some extraordinary things. Um, and when I get asked about those, never once did I feel like I had this you know sort of galloping into the sunset kind of arms in the air victory kind of <laughs> feeling because it was always like more of an affirmation okay we're going in the right direction um and that felt good but it never felt like all, an all out win
1: mm. is there a moment throughout that journey that you ignored the warning signs that you know looking back you go god that was that was screaming at me or that was a That was a red warning light going off and I just kept going and I probably should have stopped and taken a different approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the tough thing about that is you make your decisions on the data you have at the time and it's the best thing that you can possibly do. And I think that something you asked me earlier really relates to this, which is kind of the lessons from failure have been and the big takeaways have been, yeah, that different level of empathy and a much sharper view of how decisions get made. So, um, when I, when I look back, I don't look back and go, Oh God, well, that was obvious. And because it wasn't actually. And, um, something that is really relevant right now is I'm keeping a diary where I'm journaling what it's like to be alive right now during this pandemic, during this extraordinary movement around Black Lives Matter and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm the reason I'm diarizing is because I'm trying to capture what we were thinking at each of those moments that probably won't make sense to someone in the future who will have that moment of being like, oh, but that was obvious. You know, that drug that was in development, like why wasn't everybody taking it straight away? You know, well, because, you know, we couldn't understand X, Y, Z, or why didn't everyone quarantine harder? Well, because, you know, we didn't earlier because we didn't understand these things and it seems so strange to us. So you really have to try and put yourself into that moment. And when I go through that, actually, no, there were no giant red flags, um, that we could have, uh, kind of made different decisions on. I think that we um, were a very data-driven company in terms of like really analyzing what we were seeing from very early on. I'm not saying that we were perfect at it, but we also had a team of super smart people Mm. um, who worked hard to execute well. So I don't think, you know, there was necessarily um, like, there's no silver silver bullet for marketing. There wasn't Mm. really a, a specific moment
2: so I want to ask about decision making because you said that your experience and sort of the failure and the setbacks that you experienced has helped sharpen your decision making or understand how to make sharper decisions. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about being data driven in terms of your decision making, but how much did gut play into some of the decisions that you made?
0: So at the end of the day, it for me. Um, actually, you know what <laughs> the. When I was, when it came towards the very end of last couple of what turned out to be the last couple of months of Shoes of Prey, um, God was actually the place that I started. And the reason for that was I knew all the data I, and I was diving through it over and over and over again and looking for more data points to add to it. And really you had to marry in it felt like everything was stripped back. And really the best place that I could make a decision from was what feels right. What are the values that I'm going to make this decision against and what makes sense? So gut kind of sat side by side, the data very strongly. Um, and honestly, it's why I can still sleep at night now because, uh, you know, there's, I can see where decisions are made Mm. that you can look back on and regret. And I think that's probably more of a pure data approach to things. But when you really have that human element, not just for yourself, like, but apply that gut instinct to you and all of the stakeholders who are involved. And that was a pretty broad group. And I'm not just talking about investors. I mean, our customers, our staff, all that kind of stuff too. Um, that's when you can in my opinion, get to really great decisions, mm. even in tough situations. So it does play a really important role.
2: Mm. I think it's interesting, like decision. You know, in business, you're faced with decision making every single day, and being decisive mm. is such a critical skill um, mm-hmm. in terms of running a business and being a leader. And you know, we hear a lot from women in our community this decision paralysis, and um, yeah. you know, like, you know, am I making the right decision? Is it the right call? sometimes when there's too much data, you can overanalyze. How did you break through that sort of decision paralysis? Cause you would have been having to make really huge decisions every single day and quickly. How did you approach decision-making or do you have any advice around approaching decision-making?
0: Yes, I actually do. Um, One of the, so often with decisions, one of the I identified for myself, one of the biggest barriers I have is how it's going to affect other people. And when you're in a retail business, particularly like other people, are your customers, and actually it's critical to know how they're going to respond to that decision that you've just made. Or, um, in that particular circumstance towards the very end of the business, you know, my shareholders, you know, how are they going to respond to this? Like there were really important parties that strongly impacted what I was thinking about. Um, And to me, the greatest way to make a quick decision is to communicate well and to have taken everyone on the journey with you so that the decisions that you're going to be making are not a surprise. A great example is, so sometimes I see these amazing business ideas that are just not getting launched (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and the discussion that, you know, I'm having with some of these entrepreneurs is that oh, I just need to do this one more thing. I oh, you know, I've just got to do X um, or alternatively they, they launch and it kind of bombs because people are criticizing the service or the product really strongly. And to me, that's kind of like, okay, well, if you had the guts to launch early, the messaging isn't, hey, we've got this amazing thing and here's the blue sky. It's like, hey, we've got this blue sky vision and today we're launching like this. And we'd love for you to tell us you know, and if you're having that conversation, you know you're taking people's expectation to the same level as you. Um, if you're struggling to make the decision, consider having that communication with people so you can just get off the ground and get out the door. So presenting yourself as The perfect final product, I think, is always going to hinder your decision making. Making a decision and being honest about where that decision is being made in the process and on what data, and having that sort of constant flow of information, or that and treating it as a discussion, really breaks down all those barriers and gives you the freedom to make a decision. In my opinion, for me anyway, Mm -hmm. that's how it worked.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that because there is this kind of internal debate, I think, that a lot of women, especially in business, have, which is like perfectionism versus mm. quality versus speed. Like, you know, mm. um, the desire to get some launch something that's perfect, but then, um, you know, the flip side of that is maybe it will never be launched because it'll never be perfect. So I kind of like that advice around being communicative about, yeah, about where you are in the process and set the expectation, yeah. I guess, for the customer.
0: Yeah, and you should have the blue sky dream, like for sure. And it's okay to say, you know, I, you know, we want to deliver X to you, but you know, we're we're here, and you know, we're starting out like this. Yeah, I, I think mm. that's fine. So
2: let's talk about your blue sky vision. <laughs> so when you set out, when you set out to build Shoes of Prey, you set out to do something that you know no one had really done before. You set out to build a brand that was based on mass customization, which, you mm-hmm. know, kind of intuitively doesn't really make sense. It's like, how can you put these one off pieces <laughs> yeah. at such scale? So can you talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about like what your vision was in that in those early days and and what made you think that it could work? I mean, it did work for a long time. Like how
0: Oh yeah. 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 So I guess um it was a really consumer centric point of view because I love the idea as a customer. (laughs) I really loved being able to design my own shoes. And, um, to be really honest, I think that, um, coming from that consumer centric point of view, there was a certain amount of, um, why hasn't this happened? Surely there must be a way to do it. And I think that's a combination of naivety of the industry itself and how the mechanics work. Um, and a touch of arrogance as well. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I'm going to do it. You know? Um, maybe that's determination. Maybe arrogance is a a strong word. Yeah. But um, But, I mean, you know, there's something in that, you know, um, that, you know, yeah, I'm going to make this happen. And I, I do think that they are probably like quite important elements to, you know, having a super big vision because, um, you know, the naivety part gives you the freedom from the details of an expert. So, um, and I'm not saying to ignore experts. Absolutely not. I'm saying to work with experts and find where, you know, you can have fresh eyes. I think Mm. sometimes expertise put blink, puts blinkers on and, um, as, as we progress throughout our life, you know, we're sort of picking up all of this information so we can make decisions faster so that we can kind of be like, Oh yeah, yeah, I know all the background. I've got all the information. It's this. Um, but what that can really do is close off our field of vision to the weird ideas or to having fresh eyes on something. So, you know, I'm using the word naivety, but, um, not in the negative sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, they were probably critical elements to being able to, um, kind of take on that vision and see if it would work, but yeah, from a very consumer centric point of view. And then from like strong curiosity and being action orientated. Um, so the action orientation stuff was sitting, you know, just taking bites out. So what would this look like? Is anybody else doing it? Um, how cool would it using, using like opening statements and not that we did this consciously at the time, but reflecting on it, I think, you know, opening statements, like, wouldn't it be cool if, or imagine if, Oh man, it'd be, it'd be better if I could buy shoes. Like, um, and then working backwards from there to figure out what those mechanics might be. Um, and spending time with shoe manufacturers and all that kind of stuff. Just working backwards from a, from, you know, kind of what the most amazing version of events might be. Mm. And then going back to implementing the practical stuff. And I truly honestly believe that um, technology can and will rise to meet you if you have the idea.
1: At the time, did you have an example where mass customization actually worked even in a different industry (laughs) that you could somewhat model off?
0: Yes and no. So there was this MIT paper and I can't remember if it was published in the late sixties or early seventies, but it was like mass customization is the future of retail. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that's a long time ago that people started talking about it and there'd been lots of punts on it. So, um, I think the very first version was actually a Burger King campaign of customize your own burger. Um, we had delighted to see lots of, mm, uh, lots of little, um, versions of it. There was mixed my granola, there was, which is design your own granola chocolate where you design your own chocolate. Um, you know, we we're starting to see it in lots of different verticals, even though I've just named one vertical, which is food. Um, but there, we were starting to see it appear in lots of places. And there was this big question mark, like, is it actually the future of retail? Uh, and so we were amongst the kind of, that kind of group that decided to really explore it and, um, arguably took it, to some of its furthest parameters. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of around, but it wasn't executed well or to its fullest extent. And what we really discovered along that journey was that it wasn't just a retail concept. Like it was, also, something that was where we needed to be the manufacturer as well. And that it set off this kind of chain reaction of exploration where being the front end and helping people to visualize what they were going to get as an end product that had never existed before. <laughs> um, so, creating those virtual renders and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing, you know, it was much more than that. We had to keep taking steps deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the supply chain and supporting services. And it's an interesting conversation to have in a market like today where the kind of crisis that's happening around. Um, COVID-19 has many, many dire aspects to it. But if I pluck out one from the economic side, which is, you know, retailers, these guys are stuck with, Mm. you know, warehouses and backrooms full of inventory tell me a merchandiser today that can, that is thinking eight months in advance, which is, or 12 months in advance, which is frankly, like that's when they need to make their purchasing decision of what to put in that stock room. Who knows what consumers are going to be buying in that amount of time. And I don't just mean in terms of trends, but how much are they going to be buying as well? And then if we ratchet back a step further from them, you have the manufacturers who have had to have been, who are making say the textiles that, designer is going to choose from to decide what to make, to present to those merchandisers. Like really you're thinking about something that's, you know, two to three years out before anything, you know, really hits a consumer's field of vision to consider buying. And all of that whole system is completely thrown out of whack at the moment with this change in demand. And the way supply has been meeting it. And I'm like, oh, this is the perfect time for on-demand <laughs> I was, I was, was thinking you were going to ask the same thing. Yeah. We're both going to ask. If you launched Choose
1: a Prey today, do you think the journey would be different? Do you think the outcome would be
0: different? Wow, oh, uh, It would take it. No, I don't know about that. I think that, um I think, actually, look, maybe. So one of the mm. things that we did towards the end was we started serving other brands. So they could design a shoe with us. So like one of, yeah, one of the key things is, that's an issue for retail brands is what I just said, which is, okay, you know, I've got to make these the huge stuff, decisions yeah. and I've got to... And so let's say you have something that sells really well and you didn't order enough of it to meet the demand you're experiencing, then you've missed out on making a whole bunch of sales. Let's say you've ordered... Something and it was a complete dog of a product didn't sell and you have backroom full of it and you don't know who to give it away to <laughs> you know it's mm-hmm. and you've lost a lot of money on it, whereas with us they could you know design. Say you know ten shoes, put them on the website, or even just put the renders on there in the on their website, or buy you know just one of each to put them in their stores. See how they sold, and then make a decision of how many more to order off of that. We could replenish their stock every two weeks, so they could have wait lists that weren't too long and all that kind of thing. So you know that part of our business, I think, could be it could have been. You know, really appealing in today's environment. Oh,
2: I remember sure. when you did that, and I just remember thinking that that was absolutely genius. <laughs> why do you think? <laughs> oh, it, <thanks. laughs> why do you think it's not been done? Why do you think this isn't being done by businesses or brands? So,
0: so look to be um, like super transparent about it. Um, the base costs of doing that are definitely mm. higher, um, and I think that we're in an environment today where. Price points are really challenging to manage, um, particularly with the kinds of models that we have in wholesale. So, you know, everybody needs to make their cut. The person who's putting it in their store needs to make a profit, um, to be able to run their store and to be available to that foot traffic and to be doing their own marketing. The person who, um, designed and commissioned the product with the manufacturer needs to make their amount of money off of it. The manufacturer needs to make money. The person who sold the manufacturer, the materials needs to make money. Um, and the person who like is in the store is trying to hit the right price point for their customers, um, but still get a beautifully high quality product. A great example of this is actually, um, Kylie cosmetics. We have the person who is selling it and who is the influencer face of it with this Mm. huge audience working On their own brand directly with a manufacturer. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of other people in between that entire system, and I won't propose to know huge amounts about that that particular business, but it is a great example of cutting out some of those in-between people to create a truly kind of direct-to-consumer brand that kind of houses all of those steps in the one entity as opposed to breaking them up over a whole chain. So I think that, um, you know, there are kind of, uh, when you look at how the entire system works, not just any one player within it, that's the reason that we're having that issue.
1: Mm. I mean, we have seen DTC just growing, haven't we? Especially in beauty. Um, It makes sense. Absolutely. And I don't know if if it's frustrating watching that (laughs) happen over the last Ah, last few years. It is good. It
0: is good. Bloody fantastic. I'm super excited about it. And I'm kind of, it's not that, it's certainly not that those, the wholesale model is dead. It's that the wholesale model needs a huge re-looking at. Yeah. 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 So, I would, I would be loath to say that anything's completely dead right now. I think that everything has an opportunity to change. Um, yeah, I know that's like such an optimistic way to say it, but you know, there, there is this exploration that is rich to happen right now. And I suspect that a lot of those wholesalers have been thinking about that for a while because we do see a lot of in-house brands going on.
1: Um, Anna spoke about uh, decision paralysis earlier in terms of making decisions in your own business. But I'm also Mm -hmm. interested, um, did you think that Shoes of Prey offered women too many choices in terms of Mm -hmm. their
0: shoe style? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> 110%. <laughs> I'm what? sorry about that, ladies. I'm really sorry that we, 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 we so made your lifting. life so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We, we put, we gave you all the heavy lifting and I'm so sorry about that. So <laughs> it's kind of like, um, now look, Adobe probably won't love me for saying this, but it's kind of like the difference between, you know, InDesign and Canva. Oh, good, like great. you know, That's yeah. a great analogy. Yep. 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 Yeah. You know, Canva just goes, we got this, we got you back. You're going to look good. You know, here are some of the choices, you know, your style, we trust you on that. You know, we've, we've taken, we're not making you do the heavy lifting. Whereas Adobe's like, do anything you want. And you sit in front of InDesign and you go, whoa, uh, (laughs) what is, what is this doing? Oh God, I didn't mean to do that. You know, where is X, you know, why are there a hundred buttons down the side? So I think, yeah, we, we were, um, you know, sort of, wanting to go into that simplified direction towards the end of it. And the challenging thing there is really, um, really teasing out the consumer insights well uh, because your surveys, we as consumers answer questions as best we can and we think we're giving those the right answers but you need to watch the behaviors and really wiggle out of people what they're actually going to do when they're presented with that situation and then UX obviously plays a really important role in that so I'll give you an example we um we did lots of customer surveys along the way of course and um in one of them one of the questions we asked were what are your favorite shoe brands now if I ask you that you're most likely going to say Bottega Veneta, um, because who doesn't love their shoes right now? <laughs> uh, Balenciaga, um, Jimmy Choo, Louboutin, you know, maybe you might throw in a, like a Nike or a Converse, you know, you know, and then you're like, um, yes, yeah, so they're my favorite shoe brands. And then I would be like, cool. Okay. So what shoe brands are in your wardrobe? <laughs> um, uh-huh. Tony Bianco, <laughs> um, Converse, you Mm -hmm. know, Nike, um, which which in your, and from the shoes in your wardrobe, which ones do you wear every day? Nike. Okay, great. So, um, how much do you spend? Did you spend on your last pair of shoes? 120 bucks. Cool. So, you know, then I understand from that suite of questions that you would love to buy the, you know, thousand dollar pair of heels, or you would you really adore that brand and all that sort of stuff, but you're never going to hand over that money for it. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're going to hand over $120 and you want something that is comfortable. And it, it, yeah. So really teasing those things out. So where we, we found the issue in terms of choice was if someone says to you, do you want to design your own shoes? Like the resounding, um, outcome of our, um, research was, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we started and we sort of tried to really get those teasing out questions in there to get to the heart of what that meant. Um, And then we, you know, isolated um, the elements that people need, barriers that people needed to remove to be able to make that purchase or to engage with designing. And one of the places that we, that was a blind spot through all that research was being able to figure out how much was enough choice and how much was too much choice. And I don't know that we ever fully achieved that. Mm.
2: Did you ever test, um, like different levels of choice and to see how customers engaged and what sort of insights did you get through that process?
0: So look, the tough thing was that all of the, um, everything we built was custom in terms of Mm. our technology. Mm. (laughs) And so it was always a big investment to do those tests. Um, One version of those tests that we did was when we collaborated with designers um, and we were really fortunate in Australia to collaborate with some amazing designers like um, Anna and Luke at Romance was born, Carla Zempati, the Doyen of fashion in Australia as far as I'm concerned. Um, Some beautiful labels in New York like Jonathan Simkai and Tome. And um, within those, because there was that designer aspect to it, the capacity to make changes to those shoes. We really limited because we really wanted to honor the vision of that designer. And as soon as you take it too much and still put their brand on it, it's you know, not really true. So um, that allowed us to create those limitations. And then also towards um, the last sort of maybe two years of Shoes of Prey as well, we really got focused on developing our own collections and what we, and really presenting like these are the top five five shoes of the season and presenting those to people and giving them, you know, suggestions on how to customize that were much more limited and they could go down the rabbit hole and completely change things from that point of inspiration. But yeah, we certainly did try to shift that journey around. In terms of the outcomes of those, Um, my overall sense is that we were probably still a bit muddy on, you know, kind of how that should be. And I think it's because by that stage, you know, there are so many elements involved in making those changes from, you know, the kind of UX to the tech that needed to shift underneath that to then. Manufacturing processes and yeah, it was it was definitely um, pretty complex. Mm.
2: To yeah, test. the domino effect of mm. one small change or one small decision on your entire business in terms of the supply chain <laughs> and the manufacturing and yeah, the website and.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's where that, for me, that was actually definitely a source of paralysis too. So, um, there's kind of paralysis with decision-making at the front end, but there can be paralysis in decision-making when it comes to the execution as well. And a concept that I, um, really love, um, that helps to alleviate that, um, that I came across was called fake doors. So it's kind of like, um, where you say to someone, I'm gonna try and think of a good practical example. Um, (laughs) you know, kind of click this button and, you know, then we'll, um, it'll auto generate, um, you know, a a set of palette suggestions or whatever it is, but really, you know, you click the button and someone on the other end is, um, looking at your data and putting it together for you and showing you it. So, you know, there's, and then you build the technology if you think that, so maybe you do something in a very manual way right, to start right. with because you don't want to invest in it too much. And I think that can then alleviate the weight of, you know, sort of technical debt that you might build or, you know, mm. in all of these tests that do or don't get up.
2: I love that concept, fake doors. I guess it's kind of testing in a it's, lean way when you can.
0: To yeah. Totally. Validate. Yeah, it's, mm. it's the MVP stuff. Yeah, for mm. sure. For sure. Mm. Yeah, we can oh. use all those buzzwords. <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> and like the, this is the thing I... I think that, um, yeah, let's like, it also too, I think I used to get super intimidated by those buzzwords, girls. Like I yeah. used to be really like MVP and then be like, go back to my desk, Google define MVP. Don't worry. <laughs> using yeah. it right. We still don't know what yeah. they all mean. It's yeah. fine. MVP in a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> in, it all in all seriousness. Yeah. In all seriousness though, um, There are way more, um, all of the discussions that you're having and all the questions that you're asking along the way probably do have a technical term, but don't think that you're, you should lack confidence or qualification to be doing this because you don't know the technical terms. It's cool that that will come. It's more impressive that you're trying these things, asking those questions, following that pattern of thought than, um, far more important to that than to know how to use the language. Um, The time that it becomes important to be able to use that language is when you are presenting to get fundraising Mm -hmm. or when you are um, in the situations where you need to be able to um, speak the language of the people that you're pitching. Um, And there are many versions of that outside of fundraising as well.
1: Well
2: said. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was actually just, uh, I was just thinking about that. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations with um, Mm -hmm. women in our community who have been through the fundraising process or are going through it at the moment Mm -hmm. and also speaking to our mentor who's Mm -hmm. an investor. Like there's so much Mm -hmm. just jargon that's thrown around that intimidates people, but especially women when when they're going through that process. What was your experience like going through that process? Because you raised millions and millions and millions of dollars.
0: Yeah, we did. We did. Um, so casual we, yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, a yeah. yeah. <laughs> no big deal. No, no, I, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's funny. I, I think that um, the reason that it, it's not casual, it's more just thinking. Um, God, yeah, that did happen, but also really um, okay. If you haven't raised money before, and if you are not running a kind of business where you're aiming for high growth and you're working with venture capital and stuff like that, it can sound totally, and I want to swear, crazy bananas. I'll say crazy instead, um, <laughs> that you raised that much money and the business still didn't work. And that we really need to put that in context to give people the bravery to understand how that works and what that source of capital means and looks like. And you know, anyone who's who's touched it knows that you're being given money to try. And you're being asked to try intelligently and to put that money to work in action to see if your idea will, you know, float or fail, or um, sink as quickly as possible. And capital investors, like who are who are who are experienced in high growth investment, know the high level of risk that is associated with that. So I guess I just want to say that first and foremost. Um, so, you know, you have a responsibility to deploy deploy the capital um, in a way that is um, in action. Nobody wants to deploy, give you money that will just sit in a bank account. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so really important to understand that first. Um so yeah, we, we did raise a lot of money. We raised, um, 27 million us dollars. So that sort of fluctuates to more impressive and less impressive in Australia with the currency changes. It's impressive mm-hmm. right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Very> impressive. <laughs> um, and that, that process was really interesting. Um, when we first started raising we didn't have a lot of resources to draw on to understand how to pitch for capital. And I kind of laugh and feel embarrassed about all the people I spoke to in those super early stages. Um, and I'm thrilled they still talk to me because <laughs> so, and you know, we have great conversations because I think, Oh my God, that's so embarrassing that we said that. Um, now there's a lot of awesome resources out there to help to understand what investors are trying to understand from you when you're pitching and what's exciting and what's not the jargon was so full on, like you could have an entire conversation in acronyms. Um, and then, you know, there are lots of, um, lots of phrases in the finance world that get bandied around so casually that make sense and are used frequently there that are not used in common day-to-day language That's at all. all sort of stuff. Um, so one of them that I came across, the honestly I didn't love, um, was, you know, the, the open, the kimono, um, which basically just means share data. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like basically, right. okay. Like basically just means like, look, let's, let's like do some due diligence. Yeah. But, okay. You know, it's <laughs> what we're saying here. But I was like, Whoa. <laughs> Hang on, <Not> again? <laughs> again. Yeah. But I, I remember like my ears just going, okay, this is, and, and it was, it was not said in an offensive way at all. Yeah. And I, mm. the, person and people who said it, I know, weren't even thinking about it in the way that that would be received by someone who hadn't heard that phrase before, particularly a woman. Um, but it's just a phrase that gets used. So yeah, there's that. And I, and on that note too, I think that it can be tough to discern when someone is being meaningfully offensive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And when it's just a situation that is awkward and unusual or has this, um, kind of you know, entrenched uh use that you're not familiar with. So, you know, there's lots of elements at play there too. Yeah. So it took a while to get used to those uh different pieces of and I, like, I'll remember I will remember really distinctly one pitching trip that we did together as three founders through the US. And I remember we would literally do, you know, three pitches a day and then go home and then spend all night re-jiggering the deck uh to make sure that we had because every potential investor had a new data point that they wanted, you know, or, you know, so we would try and preempt that with the next meeting. And then we would build into the appendix kind of more modeling and all that sort of stuff so that, um, if the question came up, we could point them to slide blah, 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 um, where that information was. So it's, yeah, pitching is complicated for sure.
2: It's a full-time job. It is.
0: (laughs) It actually is. I, I think that, um, this to me is one of the reasons that, I personally really fundamentally believe that, um, when you build your forecasting out and think about how much money you want to raise based on that forecasting, um, and where you think you'll go in terms of your marketing and what that will achieve, um, for business growth, um, you should be trying to raise to at least have like one and a half to two years worth of runway mm-hmm. because, um, to do a fundraising, um, I think that, Early on, you should be planning for at least six months for, you know, and maybe even more like maybe eight months between when you first start pitching to actually getting money in the bank. And whoever is doing that, it is a full-time job for them for that period of time. So you're going to lose that person out of your team on what they're doing day to day. They'll be able to keep across things, but then needing, if you are fundraising, they need to be executing on that full-time. And it's as simple as making sure that you get potential investors' information and answers to their questions as quickly as humanly possible. So you also need to make sure you've allocated a good finance uh, brain and accounting brain to it as well to be able to you know, crunch those numbers and get that out. And was that person new? At shoes of prey were you the person who? no it was actually michael okay yeah so it was michael fox so and he was um extraordinary with all of that and to be really honest like he kept up a lot of other parts of his role Mm. while he was doing that too which was pretty phenomenal um so yeah he was the person that was leading all of that part of the business the creative director is not really a natural fit for (laughs) 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 for that but um Yeah. I I loved, um, kind of being across that part of the business and there was like a lot of relationship building and that kind of stuff was, and, you know, finding all of those connections and was kind of more of my role in that. And then understanding and, you know, sort of what the pitch and what those breakdowns would be. But Michael was really the key point of contact and the key picture, um, with all of the technical parts and that kind of stuff. What
1: would be one piece of pitch advice that you can share with our listeners, whether they're pitching for for money or, or, you know, anything else that they're pitching for? What would be your number one pitch advice? Okay. I
0: had this amazing advisor in New York, um, investment banker, his own bank that he had formed. Um, phenomenally charismatic, smart, uh, you know, really really got into the detail of things super fast and just a phenomenal brain. Um, I write about him in the book, actually, his name's Laurent Ohana. And um, his advice on pitches was start by telling them what you're going to tell them, um, <laughs> then tell them, and then remind them what you told them. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
0: That's- but I really, yeah. yeah, yeah, I really think that it means that, you know, don't waste time get in there. And that's why that, you know, everyone's like, it's the Airbnb four, or, it's the blah, or, you know, you try and find a point of familiarity and get it out in one sentence. That's why that's so important. I'm going to tell you about this. And then, and then the detail sits in the middle, but even then, um, you know, it's just, it shouldn't be long detail. There, there are so many great resources on how to pitch uh, now. Uh, whether it's on Y Collar Data, um, Vinod Kosler has an there's an awesome interview on YouTube where he walks through what Kosler looks for in their pitch decks. Your pitch deck really shouldn't be long at all. You also need to be able to not just make broad statements. You need to be able to demonstrate that there is strong data sitting behind this and you've done your damn research and made sure that your research isn't with a myopic view. Go and talk to people who you want to be your customers, but aren't right now. Go and talk to experts in that industry, go and talk to your competitors, go and talk to, you know, form and show how you formed your view and why based on robust data. And then, you know, give the punchline. I also remember, um, Melanie from Canberra, we were, um, we did a pitch like extremely, extremely early on where we were both pitching investors in the same or talking to them about our businesses in the same, um, speaking event. And I remember her, um, being like, yeah, I know it's about, well, taking them on a journey of like, you know, why, 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 of course. Or, you know, so you help them to say, you help the people to come on that journey of like, there's this and they say, yes, oh no, it was yes, 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 of course. So like, you know, here's my first point. Oh yeah, I agree with that. Here's my second point. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And then, so therefore we should do this. And the investor says, oh, of course, you know, so Mm -hmm. if you can think about that kind of journey as well, I think that's um, really good general advice for pitching anyway.
2: It's great advice for us because we're currently going through an accelerator program where we have to pitch every Monday.
0: Um, oh, so. lucky you. Yeah. What day of the week Yay. is it? It's Friday. Oh, Happy, hello, so. to Monday. Happy weekend
2: for us doing our pitch for next Monday afternoon. So I'm going to apply everything be, that you yeah. just
1: said to that pitch. Uh, wish um, us luck. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, I think one of the interesting things for us that's come out of that accelerator, just really quickly on that, is that it is all mm. about the narrative and the storytelling. Like that is such totally. a fundamental, critical part Especially when you're bound by like well, you know, hours of two minutes. Um, you've got to be real, every word
0: counts and that narrative has to sort of carry through. Um I think too, if you can have any control over um the person's experience or narrative before they get in the room with you, that's mm -hmm. a good thing too. Um, I'm not encouraging you to be a crazy person, but what I, you know, there were things like so the vast majority of people we pitched were men. And the vast majority of their assistants were women, and so um, it's really difficult to inspire the same excitement in a man for designing his own shoes, and particularly when they're women's focused on a you know a woman's shoe. Um, and it's not to say that there aren't men that where women's shoes are that there are and they made up a great part of our customer base. And that was actually super cool. Um, so, but you know, we would, um, have the assistants design and receive a pair of shoes just before we walked into pitch. And that really helped because they would, the person we were pitching to who may not have related to it, you know, got to see the experience occur and was like, Oh, I get it. Um, same thing if you, I read the story about, uh, I think it's Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Mm-hmm. Um, when she was doing her pitching, she was trying to explain it. And instead she was like, just wait here for a minute. And she where's your bathroom. And she went and put the Spanx on and came back in and everyone was like, Oh, I get it in the way that it changed the look of the outfit she was wearing. So, you know, really thinking about if there's a way to help you put people into the context or put people into the experience before you give the pitch can be really helpful too.
1: You asked yourself a really um, thoughtful question before you quit your job to make uh, this a full time mm. gig, before you went full time on Shoes of Prey. What if I lose everything? It's definitely a question that I think all entrepreneurs ask themselves What if I lose everything? And I guess you lived that, that what if. Yeah. Um, oh, God. <laughs> was it worth it? What did you learn?
0: Yeah. Look, um, I think about that a lot, particularly at the moment. Um, and I actually get quite emotional. And the reason is so many business owners, entrepreneurs have had to look directly in the face of that in these last couple of months. And um yeah, even going to like my local coffee store to, you know, have a coffee handed out the window or whatever it is, you know, and just my heart was has been breaking seeing all of this happen. And I think we're in an exceptional situation in Australia where the kind of support that we've seen from the government has helped that not to be as bad as it could be. Um, but there is still a sense of, uh, there's still a very confronting, um, economic suffering and question marks, uh, sitting around for a lot of businesses that we won't know the answer to until we know when things like JobKeeper are going to finish or continue or how, um, childcare is going to operate and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that I think a lot of people have really had, had to sit in that experience in the last couple of months, which, um, is truly frightening. Um, the, what if I lose everything, um, is really scary. And when I experienced the closure of the business, The things that that meant was obviously financially, uh, you know, like I had put everything into shoes of prey. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't like I snuck away with this great amount of money or anything like that. You know, I just had my savings from my salary like anyone does. And then I guess, you know, the lose everything, I was really frightened about what people thought about me. Embarrassed. Um, So I'd really lost my identity in a huge in a really big way. Um, yeah, financially, I, there was, there was a lot that was gone, um, from, you know, I was, I'd moved to the U S you know, I was like, is this home? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, it really, um, I don't know if I can really put words around it. What it then drove me was this really big process, of, um, firstly, I just wanted to be occupied because my brain was doing that really great thing where it, um, latches when you have a quiet moment, it latches onto something and really digs a big rabbit hole into it. And it's not a positive direction. So for me, it was just cleaning everything top to toe in my apartment, watching the Sopranos from start to finish, um, (laughs) kind of, you know, trying to make sure that everything had landed in the right place in terms of um, being really responsible to our shareholders, to our customers with, um, you know, to making sure that the right people were appointed to the company and all that kind of thing. So it was very, um, it was, yeah, it was about just keeping super busy today. The way that the losing everything manifests is it's, it's definitely still really scary. And I do think there's some little triggers that still exist in there. And I can only imagine what that must feel like for someone who's gone through, um, something even more traumatic than, you know, in business. Um, because you know, I I imagine this is kind of like what a PTSD thing would feel like. So yeah, it's, it's still, it still lingers. And, um, I think you were lovely and complimentary at the beginning of the interview to be like, okay, you're on the other side of this thing, but Mm -hmm. you actually carry it with you. Mm -hmm. And my hope is to be able to use that to, um, you know, really harness that, deeper empathy and sharper analytical view of what happens and how things happen, uh, to go forward into the next thing. And, you know, that's a really scary prospect. It's, of course, it's exciting of, you know, okay, what's next? Um, right now it's a baby. Um, so really <laughs> Congratulations, my, my baby's uh, first few months of life, um, which has been beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, like looking into what that feels like and what it is, it's tough.
2: Mm. And I think, you know, we just want to sort of commend you and also Mm. say thank you for writing your book because I think failure or whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's so common, it happens to so many people, but it's not something that's spoken about openly and you have been so Mm. transparent in your book, so vulnerable and in this conversation as well. And I think it's such an important conversation. It's something that's so important to normalise because everybody experiences it and especially right now where people are you know may lose their business because of external you know everything that's oh, going on in the world and totally. i think i hope and i think that this conversation and, and definitely your book will sort of give a bit of comfort um to people knowing that there's something that is on the other side of that so yeah,
0: yeah look I, I hope so and i i hope that my greatest 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 hope and we started out by talking about kind of this whole idea of my story is not unique um and it's true like i mean the percentage of venture-backed businesses that fail is above 50%, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, in fact, it skews pretty close to, you know, like sort of more like 70%. We all know these numbers. We're all having this experience. Let's like share the pathway trading yeah. together instead of hacking out a new one every single time and try and shed some of that very natural shame that builds up in our thinking about it. And it's only going to come from talking about it. So, um, I will admit like sometimes I'm like why did I write a book about all the things I did wrong (laughs) but on the on the other hand like if it contributes to kind of carving out this path then maybe it's not so bad you know yeah and also it's like celebrating the fact
2: that you tried you were in the arena you You were were in the the arena arena, so you get to have this conversation (laughs) this was a
1: really wonderful interview so thank you
2: (laughs) thank Thank you you so much From all the lady brains, thank you, Jodie, for being so transparent and honest. We really only scratched the surface of this incredibly intricate, complex story. If you want to know more, grab a copy of her book, Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. We cannot recommend it enough. It is so good. The biggest insight to come out of this chat is that failure isn't something to feel shame about. Failure means you've given it a crack, it means you've put yourself on the line, pushed yourself out of your comfort zone and in Jodie's case, tried to do something that has never ever been done before. We really want to flip the script on failure. Get in there, get in the arena, roll your sleeves up. This is something that we should celebrate, it's not something that we should fear. Secondly, being able to make good, swift decisions is so important in business. We loved Jodie's approach to making tough calls. Use data to inform you, listen to your gut, always listen to your gut, and make sure that whatever you decide to do, you'll be able to sleep at night. At Lady Brains, we have a pretty simple but really effective business decision making framework. If you struggle with decision paralysis, and let's be honest, a lot of us do, our template might help you. You can download it from our website, and the link to access is in the show notes. And finally, we want you to know that even if you're struggling right now, you aren't alone. I know we say this all the time, but there are thousands of other business owners out there just like you going through the same types of challenges. If you're looking for support, come and join us in our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse. We'll be in there chatting about our giant fuck-ups and failures and the lessons we've learned along the way. And lastly, if you haven't already, please subscribe. From June 29, we will be known as Lady Brains, not Ladyland, so press subscribe right now so we stay pinned in your library.
1: Lady Brains is produced by Beth Gibson, audio production by Nicholas Sitch.